Well, good morning. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Tony Anderson. I'm one of the elders here, but I also have the joy of serving on staff as the pastor of counseling and the executive pastor, and we're glad you're here this morning. We're going to continue in the book of James, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to James chapter 2. If you were here last week, uh, Ryan Toller taught through the passages of verses one through nine, and we saw clearly what James was admonishing the church there is that we are committing sins when we play favorites. We dishonor the poor when we disregard them, but we also dishonor the rich when we only pay attention to them for what they can do for us and not care for their souls as well. And at the conclusion of uh, that um, section, we have verses eight and nine, which Ryan closes with, and it says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin or convicted by the law as a transgressor. That's where we left off. The readers were convicted by the law as transgressors. And so that's uh, the emphasis today. James is gonna tell us, what do we do when we're guilty? Now, as I study this passage, I think without exception, every commentator, every pastor who did a sermon always kept 10 through 13 with one through nine. So 10 through 13 was maybe the fourth bullet point of a four-point sermon. But I'm glad we're breaking it down because I believe if we kept it just with one through nines, the wisdom wisdom and instruction James is going to give us applies much broader, and we might be uh, tempted just to think of it in the context of partiality. But we're going to see it's so much broader than that, because how many of us sometimes find ourselves guilty of transgressing God's law? Okay, so there's a lot more than just partiality, right? So if we're going to talk about this, I think we should have a clear definition of what we're talking about with guilt. Just as a reminder, guilt is a legal and judicial term that implies criminal responsibility in the eyes of a court of law, whether that court is human or divine. So basically, it is liability or culpability for wrongdoing. If we break a man-made law, we're said to have broken the law, maybe be criminals. If we break God's law, then we have transgressed his law and are sinners before him. And the thing about law being guilt and a law is there's a standard. And it is an objective standard, all right? A law, a standard is set and it's been broken. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You can say, well, I don't really particularly feel guilty about it. It doesn't matter if you break it, there's guilt. It's one of those situations, well, I know the Bible says, but, and so because I can justify it, I don't think I'm guilty. No, when a standard is set and we break it, we are guilty. And that's the situation we find uh, James's readers in it at the end of verse 9. That's the situation we find ourselves in particularly as well. So what follows is what our response should be when we recognize, wow, I am guilty. I have guilt before the Lord. And it's going to be one of those passages similar to what Doug said a few weeks ago. As we go through it, I don't think you're going to go, oh, wow. It's going to be more, ooh, that steps on my toes. So, a little background before we look at the passage. Um, James is writing to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed from Jerusalem because of the persecution. But because they were Jewish, they grew up in this culture, and some of the rabbis of that time would actually say, whoever obeys only one law, 
good is appointed to him. In the Old Testament, there are many laws, and some rabbis would say, for everyone you keep, there's good. Uh, William Barclay, the Scottish theologian, said this, the Jew is very apt to regard the law as a series of detached injunctions. To keep one of those injunctions was to gain credit. To break one was to incur debt. Therefore, a man could add up the ones he kept, subtract the ones he broke, and as it were, emerge either with a credit or debt balance. So James was writing to Jewish Christians who may have been influenced by this. And as we get into verse 10, after coming out of the passage on favoritism, James seems to be anticipating their response. And that response is, yeah, okay, but what's the big deal? It's not that big a deal. But we have to remember verse 8 says, if you don't love your brothers yourself, you're violating the law. You're not treating people. When you show partiality, you're not treating people the way you would want to be treated. So picking up in verse 10, James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor under the law. So what James is trying to tell us is when we know that we are guilty, what we need to do is acknowledge your sin. The first step is confession. Acknowledge your sin. Don't try to compare it. Don't try to minimize it. Acknowledge it. Agree with the Lord that that was sinful. And the way he does that is he comes right out with murder and adultery. Now, I can anticipate some of the readers there going, whoa, 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 you're coming in a little hot here. Sure, the sin of partiality, but that's not that big a deal. Sometimes it's not even that overt, right? I mean, you probably play favorites or people you like, but it's not your, the fact that you're not showing to favor, favor to someone else isn't that observable. And he's coming at me with murder and adultery. That seems a little uh, aggressive, James, I think. But I think James is remembering the words of Jesus when in Matthew 22, he's having a conversation with a lawyer. I know what that can be like. So the, the lawyer had asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The whole law is all summarized by love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you see it just within the Ten Commandments. The first four relate to deal with our relationship with the Lord. He is the one true God. Don't have any idols. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Five through 10, deal with our relationships, right? Honor your mother and father. Don't commit murder. Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. All those commandments are there. And James says, when you, if you uh, definitely do not love your brother when you murder him. Pretty clear, but Jesus expanded that and says, even if you have hatred in your heart, you violated that commandment. James says, you don't love your neighbor, your closest neighbor, your spouse, when you commit adultery. Again, same thing, Jesus expanded that to include lust in our heart. And the point he's making is you're not loving your neighbor when you show partiality because you're not treating him the way you would want to be treated. 
But it occurred to me also that why does someone favor the rich? Well, the reality is it gets us something. And Ryan made this point. Material things, all right? I, I want to be friends with the rich person because maybe I have access to material things. What's the saying? What's better than having a boat? Having a friend with a boat. That's even better, right? But a rich person gets maybe standing, get us introduction to someone. And do you know people who always let you know in conversation who they know, you know? And they may tell, speak by a first-name basis. You know, I was over in Tallahassee, and I saw Ronnie, okay? All right? They let you know those things. Well, what happens is, in that case, the rich man becomes our idol, our golden calf, our tool to get what we want. And what the Bible calls that is the sin of idolatry. And it says when we commit idolatry, when we look to someone or something other than the Lord, the Lord calls us adulterers. It's clear in the Old Testament. We're going to see in James chapter 4. Again, we are adulterers when we look to people rather than to the Lord for our source of a blessing and standing. So again, we are convicted of violating the law. Now, the good news is for us, in James's time, they had the sin of partiality, and maybe they were minimizing that. But we don't ever minimize our sins and consider someone else's sins as worse. Right? Oh, you don't. The person next to you might, but you don't. But as I was preparing for this, I said, how, how do we see this? What are some ways, because I want us to make this very real, what are ways or when am I tempted to minimize my sin and think of someone else's as greater? I was talking to our, uh, the, our three pastors in student ministry, and I said, where do you see this in your life or in student ministry? And they go, well, uh, students, they may think that those who curse and swear and are aggressive and mean in their speech to others, that's far worse than if I come over here with just one of my friends and we gossip about somebody else small circle, and it's, it's not really a sin if what I say is true, right? No, gossip is gossip whether it's true or not if it's not spoken in love. Or how about, yeah, those, we have some students, man, they're out there, they're drinking underage, they're smoking dope. That's a lot worse than if I just don't obey my parents by getting my chores done on time. Well, what do we think, though, when we think of sexual immorality? Adultery, that is a lot worse. Physical adultery, that's a lot worse than watching pornography. I mean, no one's really getting hurt, particularly if nobody knows. So that's a lot worse than this sin. Or cheating on your spouse, adultery, that's a lot worse than maybe some shortcuts financially. You know, I, I habitually come in late on my time, but I round my timesheet up. So those 10 minutes a day over a full year, that's not as bad as actually committing adultery. Or how about lies? Yeah, clearly if you lie to someone, that's a lot worse than just not speaking up. Lies of omission, they're not as bad as outright lies. Or in this culture, those sins of homosexuality and transgender, that. That is a lot worse. I'm gonna, I can find an Old Testament verse that uses abomination. But our heterosexual sin, fornication, that's not as bad. I mean, particularly if we're going to get married anyway, if we love each other. In fact, we might even 
live together and come to church together. So clearly we don't think that's as bad as what the world is pushing on us. Don't even get specific sins. Just think of any broken relationship you have right now where there's friction. That's broken because, well, the way we got here is their sin was worse than my sin, and I'm waiting for them to seek reconciliation. They may have sinned against me, and I sinned in return, but because they sinned first, it's worse, right? I hope we're starting to think we can all do this, not just in the area of uh, partiality. And so what James wants us to understand is there is no grace within the law. There is no grace within the law. So what do I mean by that? God is gracious. Praise the Lord, he's gracious. But within the law, if you or I say, I am counting on my obedience within the law to have, you, to have fellowship with God and eternity with him, you better make 100 on the test. 99 is not going to do it. There's no extra credit. There's no grading on a curve. There's no cheat days. Within the law, you have to make 100 if you're going to have eternal life with the Lord. And we know that's not possible. Now, I just want to acknowledge so your mind doesn't go down a rabbit trail. For some sins, the fallout in the short term can seem larger than others. Okay, simple example. If a married man with four kids commits adultery, is the fallout maybe greater than if it's a married man with no kids? Same sin, but the fallout could be greater. Don't get lost by that. Also, it's clear in the Bible that judgment on certain unbelievers seems to be harsher because of places where it says for them it will be worse in the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're talking about within the law, our ability to have Standing with the Lord is, there is no grace within the law. So I just want to stop right now. You've heard some great testimonies. If you maybe had that mindset, you know, I think I'll be all right before the Lord because I'm better than most people I know. What is, haven't killed anybody, but you have hatred. I haven't committed adultery, but I've lusted. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. You stand convicted. And so I would ask you to consider today the offer that if you recognize you're a sinner and that Christ died for you to pay the penalty for your sins and you believe and have faith, you can be born again and have eternal life. But that is the only way. Some good news for some of you is you might be thinking, you know what? I have broken so many laws that if I had to earn back credit, I don't have enough years remaining in my life to do that. Good news is you don't have to. You just have to place faith in Jesus like these three people did this morning. What a great testimony that was. So we're guilty. James says, acknowledge it and confess it because there's no grace within the law. So what should our next step be as we move into verse 12? In verse 12, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Speak and act as those that are to be judged by the law of liberty. He's telling us what we need to do because of a re coming reality, but let's figure out what's he talking about by the law of liberty. Well, in this, what he's telling, oh, let me go back here. The law of liberty, we also saw the term in James 1.25 when Doug was there. The law of liberty speaks to the reality that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when we place faith in him, 
we are freed from the penalty of sin. You understand? We are free from the penalty of sin. The fear of hell no longer hangs over us when we have faith in Christ. We are also freed from the power of sin. Now, we may still choose to sin, but we are choosing. We are no longer enslaved to that. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to obey and to please the Lord in each and every circumstance. And we will one day be freed from the very presence of sin, where sin is not even in the environment. We live set free from that. The Vines Dictionary defines the law of liberty this way. The law of liberty is a term comprehensive of all the scriptures. So it's still encompassing the scriptures, but it's not a law of compulsion enforced from without, but meeting with a ready obedience to the desire and delight of the renewed being, the believer, who is subject to it, into it he looks, and in its teaching he delights, he is under law, implying union and subjection to Christ. When we place faith in Christ, we are set free. We no longer have to fear the law, but we can now seek to obey it out of gratitude and love for Christ uh, rather than out of fear. Because think of it this way. This, This helped me. When Jesus came and lived on earth, did he not kill anybody because he said, Ten Commandments said I can't kill anybody. Do you say, oh, boy, hadn't had a good meal. Let me, let's steal it. Oh, nope. He did, he did it because he loved the Father and he wanted his Father's will to be done. He lived because he wanted the same thing the Father does. When we are set free to live by the law of liberty, we now obey because we love the Father. We love his Son. And that is what is true of us. We can live that way. And when our eyes are open, we recognize actually that the law of liberty has a higher standard of holiness than we once believed before we were believers. Now, God's law has always been the same, but we recognize the law of liberty has a higher level of holiness. Let me give you an example of that. Next month, Lisa and I celebrate 40 years, our 40-year anniversary. Yeah, that's all for her because she had to live with me. But let's think about it. Let's say I go, okay... Bible says, love my wife. All right, so there's a commandment. Do not commit adultery. I won't step over that. Bible says I can't kill her. It's okay. Won't do that. Bible says, don't lie to her. Okay, Bible says, don't steal from her. So as long as I don't step outside those commands, I've loved my wife. Yes or no? Maybe a little bit. She's grateful I didn't kill her or steal from her. But the reality is when we see we are now to love like Christ loved us, before, as long as I didn't step outside the boundaries, this could all be for me. But now that I'm set free to live under the law of liberty, I love the way Christ loved me, not out of compulsion, but because I am grateful for what the Savior did for me. So what James is telling is, as we start to recognize our sin and change our thinking, recognize that we are free to love like Christ loved us. And James reminds us when he's in that verse, it is coming. Speaking act as those who are to be judged. So as a believer, the day is coming before the judgment seat when our actions will be evaluated by the Savior. Back in February, when we were going through Revelation and we are talking about the judgment seat, one of Doug's points was this. My works 
your works as a believer will be tested and will include all that I have said, done, and given for the sake of reaching the lost and building the believer, both my actions and my motives. So James is saying, because you are set free to live under the law of liberty, the time's coming when we're going to say, well, let's see if the proof's in the pudding or not. That time is coming. So, if that's true, and that's coming, and I've recognized my sin, what James is starting to teach us now is we have to have repentance that bears fruit. And the first thing that would require is changing my thinking. Jesus has told us that my words and my actions are an overflow of my heart from my mind. So if I'm actually going to start talking differently and acting differently, my thinking has to change. If I've been minimizing my sin and really magnifying someone else's sin, that is going to be hard for me to love them. Think of that. Can you just think of our world today? When we think of someone as so much worse, our response typically is anger and division. We don't love. So we need to start changing our perception of our own thinking. I think Jesus had, um, I think of the account in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is having dinner with a man named Simon. And during this dinner, there's a woman in there who is continually washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her own tears. And Simon, a little bit self-righteous, is thinking, if he knew what a sinner she was, this wouldn't be happening. And we have this account then in verse 36. And Jesus answered him. Simon didn't say anything. Jesus knew what he was thinking. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. As I was reading this, I don't, don't know the voice inflection, but it seems a little arrogant. You got something to say to me? Say it. And a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. If I think and believe I've been forgiven much, then out of gratitude, I can love much. But if I in my mind think, you know, my sins weren't that bad. Jesus, I probably could have gotten to heaven if Jesus just got a good beating rather than going to the cross. Or Jesus is happy to have me on his team. I'm not going to love much. When we realize we have been forgiven much, then we can love much. Uh, Dave Harvey makes a great point in his book, When Sinners Say I Do. Now, the book is written in the context of marriage, but as we read this quote, think about all your relationships with your spouse, with your kids, coworkers, because I think it's very applicable. Harvey says, the ongoing need for the Savior is exactly what a professing Christian must hang on to. The cross makes a stunning statement about husbands and wives. We are sinners and our only hope is grace. Without a clear awareness of sin, we will evaluate our conflicts outside of the biblical story, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, thus eliminating any basis for the understanding, true reconciliation, or true change. Without the gospel of our crucified and risen Savior, our marriages slide toward the superficial. We begin to make limp justification for our sinful behavior, and our marriage conflicts end at best in uneasy, partial, negotiated settlements. So what he's saying is, if you are in a conflict with someone, and you want to address it outside of the reality that we have been forgiven much, 
all you're going to do is sort of have these negotiated temporary peace because you do not think you've been forgiven much and true reconciliation cannot occur. We have to always remember the cross each and every day for what we've been forgiven of. So what are some practical ways you can do this? Uh, I, want, I want you guys to be able to go, go out of here with something very practical that you can add to your prayer life this week. First of all is pray to the Lord, help me see my own sin first. Every day, Lord, help me see my sin first today. As a pastor of counseling, I, get, uh, the, I see the uh, requests for counseling that come in. We call them uh, PDIs, personal data inventories. One of the questions is, what brings you to counseling? What is the problem as you see it? A large majority of them start with something like, my wife, my husband, my teenager, my in-laws. Very rarely does it start with my sin and the problem. So we need to start thinking of our sin first. So here's something. Here's a... um, good test uh, that I got listening to Pastor Brad Bigney. Think of this past week, last seven days. Okay, last Sunday you were here. Think of all the relationships and interactions you've had over the last seven days. Quickly, do a quick review in your mind of what all has transpired. As you think back on that week, are you more mindful of you being a sinner or you being sinned against? What comes to mind? Can you remember all the people who aggravated you, cut you off in traffic, mistreated you, misspoke to you, spoke harshly to you? Or you just like, oh, wow, I remember when I sinned against this person. I remember when I was unkind with that person. What are you most mindful of? Ask the Lord to help you see your sin first. Then say, Lord, help me see my sin as worst. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, didn't you just spend the first part of your whole message trying to say, don't compare sins, you, break, you, you commit one, you've broken them all. Why do I need to think of my sin as worst? Well, here's the reality of the fact. For me personally, I'm talking to myself and you, your, pers- your sin, you should consider worse because that is your personal responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If your sin had words, it would say, crucify him crucify him. That's my personal reason. I can look at everyone else's sin, but my sin is my role in his crucifixion. And so I ought to think of that as worst. The apostle Paul had that same mindset when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He writes, I thank Jesus, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorant in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord is more than abundant with the faith and love which we are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save all sinners and he says, among whom I am foremost of all. He didn't say I'm in the top 10. He said, I am the foremost of all. Now you might think, well, Paul probably was a worse sinner than me. He did some great things, but I never persecuted the church. I never held coats while people stoned someone to death. But I think in reality, if we were honest with each other, if we looked at biblical history from Adam all the way to the time of Paul, and we said, rank the sinners in order, worst to least, we'd go a long way before we got to Paul. But Paul knew he saw his sin as worst, and we need to as well, because that's going to help us change our thinking.
And then finally, Lord, help me see that I need to work on my sin most. That should be our top priority because it's the one that we have the ability to change. How many of you have now, 40 years, I realized I can't change my life? Figure that out. About year 38. No. Um, that is, a, everyone's growth and change is a work of the Spirit and their cooperation with the Spirit. We can't change someone else, but we can seek to repent of our sins and grow and change. So another time of reflection. If we've gone through this and we're recognizing, do I sometimes think my sin's not as bad? And I'm saying, Lord, help me see my sin first and worse. Have you identified one yet? This is a sin that keeps coming back and bite me in the ankle. This week, this is a sin I'm working on. Do you have one? Can you write it down? Would you be bold enough to even tell someone, your spouse or someone in your family group, this is the one I identified. That's what I want you to, I want you to see if I'm growing and changing in it. Otherwise, we just heard another Bible lesson. And I want us to recognize that when we come in here on Sunday, this is our primary disciple-making venue. This is where we hear God's word and want to grow and change. So can you identify it? Okay, so now that my thinking is corrected, Lord willing, I was guilty, I acknowledged it. Repentance is that change of thinking. Then if it's true repentance, it will bear fruit and look like something. And now the, uh, James says, so speak and so act as someone who has been set free. So we should speak in a way that gives grace. I think that's the best way to say it. Speak in a way that gives grace. Ephesians 4.29 says we are to put off unwholesome words and speak edifying words that give grace to the hearer in the moment of need. Some church words there, but I think the easiest way to think of it is this. I should speak in a way that the hearer, it makes it easier for whoever's hearing it to respond back like Jesus. They may not, I can't control them, but my words should make it easier for them to respond like Jesus. My words should not be a stumbling block. So, again, let's get practical. Let's think about the sin of complaining. Now, I have an example with my son. I was just saying Thursday night. You know, when you don't have an only kid and you say, well, in our family, one of my children who shall remain nameless doesn't do him a lot of good. It's him. I mean, with Doug, he had six you know, he says, one of, with one of my kids, and even if he slipped up with a pronoun, he only identified 50% of them. But so I remember, this is convicted of me, sometimes my son would complain about things, and I'm sitting there, maybe his parents did that. Do they know how easy they have it? When I was a kid, this, you know. When I was a kid, I had to stand up to change the TV channel. You know, really hard stuff. <laughs> But I would say, okay, they're complaining. And then I recognize I would come home from work. I'd complain about partners, clients, things of that nature. And I realized I'm complaining. My words are a stumbling block. And Philippians 2 says, do everything without grumbling and complaining so that my faith looks differently. So how about you? Are you a grumbler and complainer? That's a way, that's a practical way to start speaking and acting as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. How about encouragement? 
words of encouragement, not meant to just puff up people, but to affirm them that they are doing well, they are serving the Lord well, or they're persevering well in a trial. Do you look to encourage people? You know, um, if you don't know, I can't believe you don't, but if you don't know Tamara Dyer, Director of Connections, she is excellent at this. I'll be talking to her in the courtyard. She'll see someone across the courtyard and make a beeline for them to encourage them in some way. The person that she speaks to, they would not have judged her. I mean, Tamara's on the other side. There's no obligation for her to come, but she makes the effort to go and speak words of encouragement. I am amazed at how words of encouragement can continue to help people persevere, and we don't know what their current trial may be but just affirming them, thanking them can be a great gift. But also there are times when we have to admonish, right, and correct. If we speak, think about it, if someone, we want someone to respond back like Jesus, if they are in sin, ignoring it is not going to help them respond like Jesus. Now, our mindset can't be, I am admonishing you because your sin's making my life hard, it's embarrassing me, it's like, no, I have to speak truth to you because by you walking in sin, it's making your life difficult and dishonoring the Lord that you claim. Yeah, in practical ways. I mean, it, you got to be honest, but you say, you know what? I've been asking the Lord to see my sin first, worse, and work on it most, and I know how hard it is. And so I'm working on that, but, and I know it can be hard for me, but I just say, I, I got, have concern for you. And I believe this behavior, this action is sinful. We do not love them if we remain silent. That is not loving. And then I also think, a little bit bigger, we have to confront the lies of the world with grace. We have to confront the lies of this world with grace. Last weekend, we got to get away for a little bit, and I was reading about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, a Protestant pastor in Germany during, in the 30s during the rise of, of Nazism. And Bonhoeffer, the, what I read said, during that time, there were 1,800 Protestant pastors in Germany at the time. 300 of them formally identified with the Nazi regime as Nazism and the church tried to become one, like, nationalist uh, religion. 300 of them, of which Bonhoeffer was included, or the Church of the Confessing Christ, where they, said they confronted the evils of Nazism. 1,200 remained silent and tried to stay neutral. And Bonhoeffer spoke about the spiral of silence. In, 19, in the early 1930s, if people had spoken out against Nazism, it may have turned the tide. But the longer they went, the harder it was for other people to speak up. And I think that's true of the church today. I'm not saying that we speak the tr- we, we go out there and we confront the sins with anger because we think we're better than them, but we do need to speak out and say, you know, it's a lie that the unborn are not human. It's a lie that God created more than two genders. It is a lie that marriage is for someone other than just a husband and wife. We need to lovingly point that out. And we can do that. If you not, we're not looking for large platforms. Just have individual conversations. Hey, can we have a conversation? I know you said you believe this. I just want you to know at the end of the conversation, we may not agree and we can still be friends. But I do want to talk to you about this. 
rather than saying, if you don't agree with me, our friendship's over. We need to confront it and speak truth in that situation. I think sometimes there's this sense that we, again, another lie of the world is, let's don't say anything. Let's just be friends with those who have a different view, and then they'll see my difference. But if life is easy for them, if they can have friendships with you and never have to be, uh, have their lies confronted, there's no compulsion on them to change. They can enjoy fellowship with you. There's nothing bringing them into contrast with the word of our God. So speak the truth in grace. Then always act in a way that demonstrates biblical love. Act in a way that demonstrates biblical love. Because biblical love is an action. It's not primarily a feeling. John 3.16 does not read, in my Bible anyway, for God so loved the world that he sat up in heaven and felt warm and fuzzy about us said he gave his only begotten son. So I think a good definition of biblical love is this. It's doing what is in the best interest of another according to the Bible, no matter the cost and with no strings attached. That's the way Jesus loved us. We were sinners separated from God. According to the word, payment needed to be made. Jesus sacrificially made that payment with no strings attached. All we have to do is believe, and it says even our faith is a gift from God. So if we're going to love someone, we're going to do what's in their best interest according to the Scripture. Sometimes what they want is not what's according to the Scripture, right? Very simple example. If you were a parent, your kid would want candy all the time. Do you give them candy all the time? No, thank you. One parent over there doesn't give... Now, we have our grandkids for a week. We can give them candy all the time because we're going to hand them back. No, that's not, not kidding. I'm kidding. That's not true. So, what is in the best interest? And then no matter the sacrifice, love is primarily in action. This, I think, confronts our sins of omission, right? We didn't do anything wrong, but we also didn't do what was right and loving. And so, when we see we have an opportunity to act in a way, demonstrable acts of kindness, we need to do that. Because did you know if like love is primarily an action, hate is also primarily an action or an inaction. You get an example of this in Proverbs. In Proverbs 13, 24, it says, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him gently. The godly father who sees that a son needs correction brings correction. But if he sees he needs correction and doesn't, it says he hates his son. Because it's like, well, he might not like me. I want to be his friend. When we, have, when we see what is needed to be done and we withhold it, we are loving ourselves and we're hating the other person. So we have to act. We have to act. Well, the band's going to come forward now, so just let you be aware of that so you're not distracted. And we close with verse 13, which has both a warning and an encouragement. James 2.13 says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is writing a letter to Christians who are being persecuted. As they go, they're probably starting new churches. And like with any church, there's probably some people who are attending who are not born again. And James points out, if you have shown zero, no mercy, don't expect mercy. You won't get mercy at the judgment. 
but mercy triumphs over judgment. So what we need to do is remember what Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We, if we are merciful, we'll receive mercy. And as Brad Hambrick says, mercy is the willingness to accept personal loss for the good of another for a worthwhile cause, the fame of the name of Christ. Think about that. Are we glad Jesus gave us mercy? Yes. And when we extend mercy to others, we are loving the way we want to be loved, and it reflects the character of Jesus Christ. We will all either face judgment or mercy, and praise the Lord, if we have faith, mercy will triumph over judgment. So as we get ready to sing, I want us to remember that because of the Christ, because of Christ and the cross, we are set free to live under the law of liberty and we can love our neighbor as ourselves. So let's stand and sing and celebrate that great truth.
because of the cross of Christ, we know that we are free to live out the law of liberty. So as we go, let's do that. Let's live out that truth, knowing we were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We want you to know there's prayer uh, in the courtyard to, to the left of the south and just outside the back of north. If you guys need prayer, please come pray with us. We would love to meet you if you're new. Thank you, guys. God bless you all. Have a good morning.